Welcome to Expert Instruction, our Teach by Design podcast. In this episode, we'll continue our conversation about culturally responsive practices and explore how you can include student voice in your PBIS implementation. This particular topic got me thinking back to a saying that we had in my family when I was growing up. So the story goes that we were all about to go out, um, head out to a log cabin out in central Oregon that we went to every summer with to go fishing in our boat. And my dad was just doing last minute, you know, look around the boat just to make sure everything was all situated. And he noticed that the casing on around the shifter was broken and it made it so that like we were going to have problems if we took it fishing without fixing it. So, and we were on our way out, like we were gone, we were going. So there was no time to go take it to get it fixed properly. So my dad is like sitting there trying to figure out some makeshift solutions, trying to MacGyver some things together. Like maybe he could stick this little piece of foam around it, or maybe he could grab this little piece of like solder, I don't know, something, right? And my brother, my little brother was there with him and he's three years old at the time. And my dad looked down at him and he said, I don't know, Nick, what do you think? What do you think you should do? And my brother looked up at him and he said, how about tape? And it was one of those solutions where you kind of laugh at it. Like that's so, that's so simple, it's laughable. But it got my dad, the more he thought about it, he was like, well, how about tape? And so he went and he found some duct tape, wrapped it around the casing and we were golden for the whole weekend. And I think that duct tape was there for like months afterward. I think we used it the whole summer. So the saying in our family now goes, anytime there's a problem that has some sort of simple solution, like, why didn't I think of that? Like, ask your three-year-old brother, he'll know the answer. We just say, how about tape? <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot of times in society, we rely on this traditional hierarchy that puts adults as the ones with the answers, the ones who are responsible for teaching young people, right? It makes sense. The more life, the more life you live, the more experiences that you have, and we can pass those along to somebody else. When I think about school even, I think about the ways that I looked up to my teachers for validation, for acceptance, for their guidance. And maybe even as educators, you carry this charge with you in your own work to pass along what you know about the world and help your students to navigate it all. Sometimes I think too that what can happen is we get so wrapped up in the responsibility to teach and guide that we forget that young people have their, they come to us with their own perspectives, their own life lessons that they bring with them to school every day, the, their own ways of communicating with each other even. Including their voices in your implementation will create the kind of school that reflects their culture, their identity, and ultimately it'll become a place where they can be successful for being exactly who they are. When you find yourself implementing solutions to long-standing issues and nothing seems to actually be working, your how about tape question to ask might just be, what do our students think that we should do? Well, I hope you all got a chance to read this month's Teach by Design article about including student voice in your implementation. Something we didn't get a chance to explore was what are the actual practices that you can implement in your building to elicit the, those student voices, family voices, community voices in your implementation. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm so happy to have with me three folks that I've been following for quite some time. Uh, the first is Dr. Jennifer Rose, a nationally certified school psychologist who's worked in a variety of educational settings from traditional K-12 schools to juvenile corrections facilities to alternative schools, psychiatric facilities. She works for Loyola Community and Family Services out of Loyola University. But prior to becoming a school psychologist, she was actually a classroom teacher for nine years in Chicago public schools. Her work with schools implementing PBIS focuses on school climate as well as addressing students' social and emotional needs. Melanie Lieberson is also with me too. She's a nationally certified school psychologist as well and a regional technical assistance coordinator working with schools around Wisconsin to implement PBIS and culturally responsive practices. She's also a founding member of the Equity Work Group with the National Center for PBIS, and she's collaborated with state teams looking to embed culturally responsive practices in their state level PBIS framework. And last we have uh, Kent Smith. 
He is a school social worker with 22 years of experience. He works for the Wisconsin Response to Intervention and PBIS Network, is a member of Wisconsin's Culturally Responsive Practices team, and he's also a founding member of the National Center for PBIS's Equity Work Group. Throughout Wisconsin, Kent trains and supports schools implementing culturally responsive practices. Thanks for joining us today. We're so glad you could be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. So in our, um, in our series, I've been using the Culturally Responsive Field Guide uh, from the National Center as a reference for everything. And the field guide lists five core components for culturally responsive practices. There's identity, voice, supportive environment, situational appropriateness, and data, our fave. Um, so my first question for you all is, why do you think that voice is included as one of these five core components of culturally responsive practices? Anyone? Well, <clears throat> um, I'll, I'll get it started. Um, Thanks. If we think about cultural responsiveness, it's difficult to respond if you don't know what you're responding to. And part of that process is providing the environment where um, folks whose culture varies from whoever is the dominant you know, entity in control in schools or whatever agency has an opportunity to share their perspective. Um, so that voice part becomes integral to cultural responsiveness because you have to have that opportunity to share and then also listen to the voices of those whose cultures vary from your own. So without that, there's no cultural responsiveness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the opportunity to speak and to be heard. Yeah. And I would add to that, it, in Wisconsin, we ran some of the numbers a few years ago and we realized that our educators are 72% white females. So just thinking about trying to build an educational workforce that is responsive to other cultures is difficult when so many or so much of that population, that workforce has so many similar experiences or the potential for similar experiences. So for us here in Wisconsin, and then what we've kind of translated that to with national conversations is that we can't, we can't just have voice, we have to also diversify the workforce. But in order to make sure that there, there's a representation of anything other than what these potential similar experiences are, we have to get people talking about what's, what's going on and what our kids and families and communities are experiencing and where that can show up in our schools. We really need to make space in our schools for that. I think the other thing is that um, we have operated in public instruction for a long time in the name of efficiency and urgency and trying to get things done. Mm. But that's also led to us making snap judgments or assuming things based on either like what Dr. Rose had said, what we've known or what we guessed to be the right thing. And I think when we have inequity built into our system from the beginning, that tends to exacerbate it when we just assume, or as Dr. McIntosh refers to it, when we commit a suicide. So I think it becomes especially essential that we put a break on how we do business as usual and actually give voice to the people that we're, we need to do better by, rather than assuming we have the answers whether that be through how we define behavior, how we teach behavior, that we're not the expert on everybody's children. In, the, in instruction, we're experts on instruction, but not what the students may need the best or the most of. So I think that's another critical reason for doing it. And to piggyback on what Kent was saying, I'm reminded of um, just the research aspect in terms of being school-centric versus community-centric. Mm -hmm. So school-centric means that here are the expectations of how we want parents and caregivers to show up. And usually it's aligned to that efficiency model that Kent referred to in terms of, hey, we've got to get X, Y, and Z done. We need to get those achievement scores up, attendance up, yada, yada, yada. Versus, you know, community or parent-centric, which is 
hey, as the parent or guardian of these children, I'm going to make sure that they're fed, they're loved, they're sheltered, and then I'm going to send my child to the school for in, in, that I'm entrusting, you know, for for an education. And those two different viewpoints, unless there is intentionality, you know, as Ken and Mulaney referred to intentionality about seeking out parent voice, and there are a lot of assumptions that are made. And then when we talk about decisions made in the school, it's not culturally responsive because it's reflecting the viewpoint of the folks who run the school, right. which as Melanie mentioned in Wisconsin and actually nationally is predominantly white, predominantly female. Yeah. Yeah, I think what you're what you're getting at too is uh, reminding me of this, uh, the part in the field guide that talks about intentional two-way conversations that you don't just establish the rules and then ask people like, what do you think? Mm -hmm. It's actually engaging them and saying, what do you think these rules ought to be? And not just here are the rules, how does that affect you? Mm -hmm. um, so what are the ways that you have seen schools when you, when you work with schools and they say, oh yeah, we have, we're doing this, we're engaging our students and their families and our communities. How do you see them doing this in sort of a traditional way that might not be that intentional two-way inclusive conversation? So you want like the non oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say, so you want the non-example or kind of like- Yeah, yeah, or just okay. something that people might think, oh yeah, we're doing this and then you know, maybe maybe the way that they're doing it could be like a good step, but we can take it further. Go ahead. <laughs> Anyone? It's like a game of chicken. It's crazy. Yeah, who's gonna go first? <laughs> I think sort of like the the typical way it plays out is something like um, we're gonna put our leadership team together and well, we know we want family voice, so we're going to ask for a parent rep to sit on the team. But sometimes when we meet, it's hard. So maybe, you know, let's have Bob, who's our FIAD teacher, who also has a kid in the building, mm -hmm. become the parent rep that's on this team. And we can bounce everything off, you know, one person to speak for an entire group of people. Right. So I think that's, that's kind of how it typically starts out. Mm-hmm. But I think where, where it really needs to shift to is understanding who, <clears throat> excuse me, who is underserved by your system the way it's currently set up. How are we intentionally not only getting um, the voice and the opinion and, and the perspective of those families, those community members, but also giving them um, agency within within our system, within what we're trying to build. So it's not just voice, but also giving some ownership and, and listening to the ideas and the feedback and incorporating into what we do, not just, you know, sort of thank you for your input, we're taking an yeah. advertisement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was similarly, I think schools um, get really excited about creating stuff. And I'm just as guilty of that as any educator. And I just did it in my current job last week. I created something, some new document that I felt like was gonna just be so amazing. But um, but brochures, pamphlets, I feel like that's a great step mm -hmm. forward for schools to communicate out to families and the community what they're trying to teach behaviorally or even academically. But that's an example of that one-way communication where we've already developed it and we've put it in this beautiful format that basically implies that we're never going to change it because it's difficult to change things that are already in print. So I think, um, I think while, that's, while that's an important piece, like that communication out, we have to be sure that schools are finding ways to bring in information as well. So if families and community members are involved from the beginning before that document is completed, that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for, like Kent said, ownership of the system. And I think um, I think of some things that I have in common with many educators that I know, like just wanting to control. <laughs> Sometimes we want to control things as educators because we work with kids and so many things are uncontrollable. Um, and there's, I think there's a part of this process that involves a little bit of um, 
to, for lack of a better word, grief, because you have to let go of some of that control and be willing to hand it over and say, I trust you. And I trust mm-hmm. that your voice is going to be one that's going to work in this situation and that what you have to say matters. So that, I think that piece is a hurdle for people, but really getting people involved before you've produced all the materials, that's the kind of process we're hoping for. Yeah. I think it's important to think about things from a historical context too. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at, look at it this way, um, public schools as an institution became more formalized uh, as part of our culture around the turn of the century. What was going, around, going on at the turn of the century? Well, we had this influx of immigration. So in part, the mission of the public school was to not only teach academics, but also teach the American social code, as it were. So for a lot of folks, you know, that was the purpose of schooling. And so people who are part of schools are used to that orientation. However, if we also again return to that historical context, what was also notable about schools at the turn of the century is that for the most part, they were segregated. So then you had a whole group of people, most notably African-American, but also according to codified laws, in many cases, particularly in the South, that also included anybody who was not considered white, including Asians, as well as Latinos. So for that part, when we talk about voice, we are actually being, here's that word again, intentional about changing historically the role of schools, you know, from this, we are the ones who are going to set up the cultural norms to, okay, wait a minute, let's hear your perspective. You know, what Mm -hmm. is the perspective of families? And in many cases, what, what is the respect, you know, perspective of the students as well? Yeah. Um, something that, um, I mentioned in the article uh, last month, we talked to Athena Vernon out of California and she was, she told me a story about how she um, had an after-school program where every year she sat down with a blank matrix with the students and asked them to fill it out. And it struck me like you didn't teach them the behavioral expectations. They taught you what their expectation expectations were going to be. And it, it was that like this moment of like, that's uncomfortable. Why is that uncomfortable? <laughs> you know? And it's because you're putting someone in charge that typically in schools, but also in general, young people are um, traditionally told what to do and asked to comply when in actuality, like when we're talking about having people take ownership and be invested in the school system, that including them and not just saying like, here's what we expect of you, how does that feel? But saying, what do you expect of each other and what do you expect of me actually does bring out that ownership um, and it creates a space that is, I don't know, authentic, I think, um, for people. Um, so when we were talking about, so we've talked about like a little bit anyway, what schools might traditionally do with like the one-way communication where you, you get a newsletter from the principal sent out to families saying, this is what we're doing. Maybe a survey that says, tell us, you know, tell us what you'd like to do as a, as a school. Um, maybe, uh, you have your one parent representative, but that's kind of it. And that parent representative could also be someone who works at the school. So those are some traditional ways that we see families included, maybe even students included. Um, how do I know? I'm, I'm thinking, let's say I'm an educator and I'm thinking about what we're doing in my school. How do I know that what I'm doing is actually culturally responsive and not just falling in line with those traditional ideas. I think that if we if we make the connection with both the research and then also the culturally responsive field guide, mm-hmm. we can come up with some concrete examples. So what the research tells us about you know characteristics of good say student teacher relationships. You know, they say that these are relationships that tend to be characterized by like warmth and students having a sense of connectedness and belonging. 
Mm -hmm. So then if I'm in a classroom that's culturally responsive, then I'm going to see that example, as you described, of the teacher asking the students to fill out the matrix as opposed to the teacher handing the matrix to the kids. Mm -hmm. So that's part of that intentionality about trying to build that emotional connection between the teacher and the students. And that's linked with this sense of being culturally responsive. So if you took out culture and we just focused on the word responsiveness, how do you characterize responsiveness? There is that element of being empathetic and actually concerned, aware about how someone else feels or thinks about something and being intentional about adjusting your thinking, your emotions and your response to that other person. Yeah, and I, um, I, as you were talking, I kind of, I started thinking like, well, if I, if I was really thinking about something and I, uh, I was really thinking about a practice that we have in place or some expectation that we have in my building. And I thought about who contributed to creating this particular thing. If it's just the adults in the building, then maybe you're not doing something that's so inclusive of students and families and community members. But if you could point to something and be like, our students told us that this is the way that they would like to see things going. And we worked with them in like a, in a team setting to figure out how to, how to implement a new practice in our building. Maybe that would be, um, maybe just asking who was at the table when we made this decision and who contributed to the solution could be something that would lead you down the road to deciding, am I really doing this just as a one-way communication or am I being, is this a two-way conversation where someone else is contributing their experience and their perspective to what we're implementing? I think, yeah, go ahead. Cause I was just gonna, I was just gonna refer to the field guide cause it has actual matrices. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Melanie, I sense you were probably going in that direction. So go <laughs> no, ahead. Yes, uh, and I think, I mean, we've heard examples too from our part of the state where we've had schools come to us that have been implementing PBIS forever and not even necessarily thinking, oh, we wanna make it CR, but just we wanna make it relevant. Yes. And they talk to their students at their high school level and the high school, these high school students are saying, we don't like the word respect. Like you say safety, responsibility and respect and we just, it just turns us off. We just don't like mm -hmm. it. So they, got together with their students and they talked about what word might mean more to them and their expectations. And that's something that I think we take for granted as educators that we just assume that we're picking this because there are tons of examples on the internet yeah. and it's gonna make our lives easier. But really we need to be more intentional about including those voices. And then the other thing I was gonna mention, I heard on a podcast years ago about a school that looked at all of their rules through the lens of power versus purpose. Mm -hmm. And it, it has always stuck with me. So if you're intentional about getting voice in your rules, then another question you could be asking is, does this rule exist to give us as adults power? Mm. Or does it exist for a true purpose that we're really teaching students? And voice level in the hallway is the, always the example that comes to mind for me, because I think like there are times when we don't want kids talking in the hallway. I can understand that. During state testing windows, we could teach that is very purposeful. We want you to be quiet in the hallways, but the rest of the time, we're not really purposefully, that's not purposeful to teach silence in the hallway. And it's not also not going to translate to a skill outside of that setting, probably ever. So when I think about things like that, like what is what do we need to be teaching here? What's the purpose behind it? Why is it important? And then how can we make sure not just that we're teaching kids to switch away from a code that they've known in their community or with their families, but that we're making space for what they know in our schools so mm -hmm. that we can show them that it's really valuable to us just like it is to their families and their communities. I think one of the other things tying into that power versus purpose and how do you know that question of why are we doing this 
is an essential question that a team has to wrestle with. How did you land on your expectations in the first place? Are we mm -hmm. trying to teach students skills that are and operate our schools in ways that are relevant to the families and to the communities that we serve? Or is it because I just was on the internet, like Melanie said, and found the three Bs. So, hey, we're going to be responsible, be respectful, be safe. Um, before, you know, before you set your expectations, before you set your ways of being, kind of why are we doing this? Are we trying to teach those skills? And do they connect with the families that we serve? Right? Because fundamentally, education should be service driven, right? That we're here to teach, to support, to make better human beings, ultimately, right? And if we settled on these things, but it, it falls flat with the families and the community that we serve, we need to be modifying that. So surveying the families at parent-teacher conferences and reaching out when we don't have parents come to family parent-teacher conferences. Looking at how we define family. You know, are we always picking the same group of people and the people that are showing up at PTO, PTA? Or are we being intentional about seeking out the voices that aren't present in our systems? What are the things that are important that you teach your children that we can incorporate in our settings? Our goal is not and shouldn't be to assimilate students into our way of being. Our role in education is to really support them in their education, honoring and, and leveraging what they know coming in, feeding on that, that fundamental knowledge that they already have. Sort of like kind of when you were talking about um, family saying and family teaching mm -hmm. and family traditions, how do we create space on that within our schools? And how does our matrix reflect it? How do our teaching tools reflect it? So I'm gonna jump in here as the African-American woman <laughs> and the therapist and tie two pieces together. Again, I keep coming back to historical context. And then also this issue about what's the underlying, what's the underlying emotion that's driving the teacher slash educator behavior. So if we think about this, this uh, theme of over control or the need to control, where does that come from? So if it is a fear of losing control, then what is the source of that? What, what is driving that belief that if we don't have these sets of rigid behavioral and you know, requirements that we give to the students and we give to the families, then you know, you know, things are just gonna disintegrate. So I'm gonna push back against that a little bit because I think in addition to giving the practical, oh, you do this, this, and this, almost like a Pinterest recipe, <laughs> uh, we also have to do the deeper work of self-reflection and ask folk, what is it, why is it that we were doing it th this way before? Right. Because until people really get to that point where they're, they're dealing with what's going on here, mm -hmm. heart-wise, you know, from the effective range, we can come up with, you know, different procedures, but there's always going to be someone who's going to undermine the spirit of the intent. So there has to be that piece too, that, that examination of why we were doing it before and why it wasn't wholly successful in terms of really connecting with our students and families. Because whenever you have an environment that's rigidly structured, it's at the expense of someone and usually it's the person upon which that structure has been imposed. Yeah. How did we get here? Mm -hmm. And what do we need to deconstruct? Exactly. We have to be intentional about deconstructing that because we're, we're operating within this historical context of white supremacy and what that means in terms of influencing our thinking and the lens through which we create spaces. So how do you start that conversation with teams that you've worked with in the past who are, you know, that need to do some of that work, that initial work at understanding, like, why did, why did we go this route? How do you construct that conversation? Where, where do you start? You just ask the question and then hope that somebody has some sort of honest answer to the question. 
<laughs> I think sometimes you just ask the question, but I think sometimes it can be helpful to start from, like to just start this work overall from a lens of if something isn't going right, the very first thing we need to do is examine us mm -hmm. as educators, as a system. It's not, we don't need to be talking about why from a student perspective it's not going right like what's wrong with the family or what's wrong with the student or what's going on from that from that direction because there may be something but overall our job and our locus of control is all about the system that we set up and then the practices that we put in place so we have to keep the lens focused on that and we talk about I, I know we borrowed it from some amazing educator somewhere but we talk about turning the mirror toward yourself so say attendance is an issue at the high school level my first question always when a team comes to me with that is okay what does your student engagement look like like what are you doing to make kids want to be there what kinds of relationships are you building with students where do you where do you make space in your schedule for not just math and science but also relationship building and like building up students to be to be who they are who they were destined to be so i think that's a big piece of it that just I mean, underlines all this work. And what's critical with that is that the research supports that. I mean, <clears throat> the National Research Council um, said that a youth's emotional connection with adults is perhaps the single most important factor for fostering, you know, academic, you know, engagement and progress. So if the end game is we want to see test scores improve, we want to see more college ready students, especially at the high school level, then, you know, we need to be about the business of, you know, not teaching subjects, but teaching people. So what are the ways that we'll oh, go ahead, go ahead, Ken, I didn't mean to interrupt. I think part of it too is looking, so Melanie talked about the mirror, and Dr. Rose talked about those relationship pieces. I think what ends up happening when, you, when you're working with a school to start this process, there's one of two ways of looking at the reality that they've built, right? One is being very um, deflective, where it's, well, it's those families, it's, it's this new boundary that we have, it's, right, everybody else's responsibility, or being very introspective, reflective, these are the things that are within our ability to control. Kind of mm -hmm. like what Dr. Rose was talking about earlier, you know, we got here somehow. It's not that this happened to us. Mm -hmm. We made choices in our, in our implementation. We made choices in our system. Who did those choices benefit? Usually, yep, the white educators, the white administrators. And then, okay, if that's the case, maybe we need to be refining. We built it, we can change it versus this is happening to us. And we had talked early on, um, early in this work, kind of where we came from, uh, Melania and I worked in a district together for a number of years before we came to where we are now. And we had initially thought that like sharing data, right? This is the reality of where you're at, would be enough to jog those conversations. Um, turns out shaming schools into righteousness actually doesn't work real well right mm -hmm. that it, it's got to be more than that creating a little bit of a disequilibrium saying okay so this is what our reality is what can we do about it not just live with oh our risk ratios are this much higher but really there are things that are within our control how did we get here what's in our control and what do we need to shift and i don't think i think it's important too to note that this it's, it's not as easy as it sounds sometimes. <laughs> like I'm thinking back to all the meetings I sat in as an educator where I heard that we have to focus on what we have control over. And I say it today and I make it sound super easy and fantastic, but I remember sitting in those meetings feeling paralyzed, just thinking like, I don't, I don't even know what's meant by that. So I think it's important to acknowledge that this isn't work that is going to feel sunshine and rosy all the time. This is something that when you're really doing the work, it's gonna feel messy. And a lot of times like you're screwing it up. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing that I try to share with teams because I think it's important to acknowledge that, that feeling. Like you have to be able to live with that for a while and push through that. And it won't be perfect. Exactly. We're looking for better. Right. Exactly. 
So it's almost as if you have to be in tune, have that emotional awareness of your own levels of discomfort. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is actually like a therapeutic technique. There's this approach called dialectical behavioral therapy that was designed to help people manage these intense negative emotions. And so if you think about it from that perspective, it's the ability to stop, reflect in that moment and say, okay, what, where, where is this emotion coming from? Mm-hmm. Where, is this, where is this coming from? Okay, where do I feel it in my body? Just kind of sitting with it. And then also remembering that emotions are temporary. I mean, they come and then they go. And the longer you're able to sit with your discomfort, to be able to not act out on it, you know, not to speak, not to become defensive, retaliatory, walk away, any of the other countless behaviors that sometimes you see during these tough conversations, mm-hmm. then you're actually building up that stamina to have more of these conversations. And I think that's some of which uh, what D'Angelo refers to in white fragility. You know, because most white people are not accustomed to having tough conversations or even discussing race because, you know, it's, it's, it's seen as being impolite. And so that, that, that muscle has not been developed. So that's the, that's one of the integral parts is being able to develop that tolerance to be able to sit with your discomfort and move past that so that you can really truly authentically engage in in the process. And so much of this work seems so dependent on the relationships and the trust that you build with your teammates and with your students along the way that none of it is actually possible if you don't have some sort of trust that's established that speaking up or being honest about something isn't seen as a problem, you know? Um, it makes me think, so, um, so I've been reading Dr. Christopher Emden's book for white people who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too. And, um, a practice that he implemented in his classroom was the co-generative dialogue where he invited three or four students to join him in conversation for a number of weeks. And he basically was specific about who he selected to join him. Um, there were there was a student who wasn't doing all that well in his class. There was another one who was, and then there was an, you know just a variety of students from his classroom. And he let them know like this is a place for you to tell me what you like and what you don't like, and it's a place for you to affect change in the way that I run this classroom because you're going to be in it with me. And um, and the the lessons that came away from that, um, you know, were it just struck me that at the beginning of the time that he had with these students, they were very skeptical because they're like, you're our teacher. I don't, I don't trust what I'm about to tell you that if it's negative, it's gonna turn out okay for me um, to, to implementing a very small change you know, right away. And then all of a sudden they were like, oh, our voice actually matters. And I'm seeing the impact that it's having on my education. And so over time, they created this trust and he was able to build this cycle of, of feedback with his students that was a revelation for him as a teacher. And so when I think about how schools might be able to do something similar in their PBIS implementation, we're not talking about academic instruction necessarily, we're talking about school culture, school climate, these kinds of things, what are the ways that schools can start to engage students, to engage families in this culturally responsive way? So again, I'm gonna redirect folk back to the culturally responsive field guide. Great. Um, because that's a resource that provides a blueprint and structure for starting the process. Um, yes, I'm shamelessly plugging this document. So are we, it's fine. <laughs> um, but I feel like much of what we have explored during this talk so far has actually been articulated. Yeah. Um, you know, by my colleagues in the field guide. 
And I, again, you know, it starts off with this, this whole process of what Melanie talked about, turning the mirror inward, you mm -hmm. know, because we talk about that in the very first sections of a field guide about doing self-exploration. Because again, you know, we have to start first and kind of exa examine ourselves, our own way of thinking, how our own lens through which we see the world influences our expectations of others. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to start there first and then prepare ourselves to do this work. So it's not kind of like a one and done. And I think that that piece about self-examination, self-reflection, again, when I do this work with, with teens or small groups, that, that tends to be the, the stumbling block. People want to get to, well, how do I get these students to do this? How do I get these parents to do this? And I <laughs> it's say, that well, efficiency you were talking about. Well, well, how are you going to get other people to do stuff when you're unwilling to do the work yourself, on yourself? Mm -hmm. Be the person that you want others to be by modeling that behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think the key, the thing that really sticks with me of, about, we call it identity work or like that internal look before jumping to practices is that um, I think it's easy to do maybe in a one, one or two staff member basis. But what mm -hmm. we are really trying to challenge schools and districts to do is to embed those pieces into their system. So it's not just that you look at who you are as a staff and what that means collectively for your impact on students once in a while. It means that you do that periodically throughout the year and that it builds on itself and that it spirals. And then secondary, we talk through the guide about, through the field guide about choosing an area of focus. And again, emphasizing that systematic piece, the part of Yes, it's great to want to get student voice in your acknowledgments, but it can't just be one teacher or one classroom. Right. It has to be a systemic approach that applies throughout. So I think if I were going to give advice about where to start, I would say start with identity, as Dr. Rose said, obviously, first of all, but then secondarily, look for where there's a hook. Look for where people might be interested in making a change, whether it's enhancing a practice that already exists or building up a practice that you're not great at, and then take a systems view and make sure that whatever you're doing is sustainable and is plugged into your system so that it will continue to be used. I think that sense of identity impacts the school culture and climate as well. Um, part of what ends up happening is Are... that we talk about identity at the practitioner level and yeah, that matters, but then all of the staff come together. That's another group. That's another sense of identity in the building. Mm -hmm. And then you broaden it out to where we're talking about this, the identity of the building, which is the students, which is the staff. And then we start factoring the families in. Identity isn't a static piece. And what I bring to the table is a white male practitioner, right? My biases sort of show up unless I start thinking about it, unless I start becoming aware of where my biases lie and I start planning for it. Same thing is going to hold true for all of the teachers in the room. There are certain things that people have in common. Are we aware of those? Are we aware of shared experiences? Are we aware of how those shared experiences impact the tone and the pace and how the building feels to everybody? And then when we start layering the students in, do they have shared experiences? And do their shared experiences match ours as, as an instructional staff? And all of that comes together in this, you know, in this beautiful final product that is either going to affirm who students are in our environments, or it's going to result in the thing that we don't want that Dr. Rosa was talking about, where we sever connections because it's not a good fit, because I'm not valued here, because I'm not validated here. So it's completely within our locus of control, but we've got to start by thinking about who we are, what we bring to the table, what we want and how close we are to it. So we're talking about doing the identity work um, as a school. Um, and I think when I was, I watched, um, I think the three of you had a presentation at the forum um, all about culturally responsive practices. And you had mentioned 
um, in that presentation that there are some things that can help schools to kind of walk through that initial preparation work for identifying who they are, what they value, and maybe why their school is structured the way that it is before they can move forward with um, trying to do things a little differently. So uh, I don't remember what it was called. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Um, we have a couple, to I loosely call them tools because they're really, it's really just kind of guidance around what you might do. Yeah for individual people. So one thing that we sometimes recommend is like a true colors or a compass points type survey. So mm -hmm. taking a step back, and this is where Kent described learning that we can't just put data in people's faces and then expect everybody, everybody to wanna change everything. Um, we were looking for more of a soft entry point and we yeah. found that if you start with like a personality style type inventory, um, you can start to see patterns in groups of people. So we have educators all do this, whatever personality inventory, say it's true colors. And we find that um, many educators in a building are gold. It's just a generalization that we sometimes see. And what that means is if you have a gold type personality, you like structure and you like lists and you like check boxes and you're like, <laughs> um, and you might set up a system then in a certain way. So the conversation we lead schools into is looking at your staff and figuring out the majority of them, like what is their personality style? And then what does that mean for the other personality styles that might show up in your building as adults? And what does that mean for the children that show up in your building with different personality styles? So knowing that Kent frequently shows up as an orange, which is a person who doesn't love to read the directions, but will jump in with both feet and start something and just have an amazing product, possibly without following the directions. Um, if you think about my personality and his together, sometimes that comes into conflict. And until we're aware of it, we don't even realize. So if you use my example of a school full of gold educators and they set up a system that is rigid mm -hmm. and time bound and feels really good to somebody like me, it's not going to be a fit for a student who comes in who just wants to jump in with both feet and get going on something or a student who comes in and wants to have a voice and really be known for who they are as a person. So that sometimes is an easier way to start the conversation of we as adults are setting up a system based on our shared experiences and our shared tendencies. And that means that we're excluding people and we're excluding students in the process. So mm -hmm. that's one way. Mm -hmm. Another way that we've talked about is using racial autobiographies. So kind of having people investigate who they are, define for ways for adjectives that they'd use to describe who they are basically and then 10 events in your life that you think feed into what made you who you are and we try to really focus that around racial issues or like racial events and when you knew you were aware of race um and that's been really powerful too a little bit deeper of a step um we do have a colleague uh the amazing andrell davis who is our State Culturally Responsive Practices Coordinator for the Wisconsin RTI Center. Um, she brought with her a professional development model that she built um, when she was in the Madison School District called the Seven Experiences. And it's, it's, an, it's a PD model that allows the people that go through it to not only learn about the groups that they're wanting to improve their practice around with, but also get a sense of who they are in relation. So being able to identify where there's similarities where um, they wanna focus more of their attention to building bridges and making connections between their preferred style, for example, as an educator and the style that the students that they work with may have or prior learning that they may have. So I just also wanted to make sure that we brought um, Andrell's work into this. So we've talked kind of all around this particular topic and I wondered if there was anything else that you all um, wanted to be sure to share uh, before we closed out, if there was something that we didn't quite get to that you wanted to share on this. 
idea of including voice in PBIS implementation. I guess one thing that I would share is when we were when we were working through the development of the guide, we talked a lot about whether or not CRPBIS is a thing. And I think people have probably heard this conversation before, but it was a big conversation for us because it was a little bit new back then. And, um, and we decided, and it's a note in the guide that really PBIS isn't true PBIS unless it is responsive to the students and, and families and communities that you serve. So I think if there were one big takeaway for me, that would be it. That mm -hmm you can't do PBIS in a real technical way and believe that that's PBIS. It's just, it's just not, it has to be responsive. It has to have contextual fit to the students and families that you're serving. I think um, closing thought for me, this work is good. This work is amazing, but there's also a tendency to think about this kind of work in terms of sort of like this nice linear progress that all of a sudden we're going to be fully CR and we've arrived. And we know that even once we change systems, systems don't like change and they always want to revert back. And it's, it's a constant cycle. We can never, um, <laughs> we can never be complacent and rest in the work that we're doing, it's it's constant monitoring and constant growth to make sure that we're getting the outcomes that we're looking for. And I think to close, I would also add the point about the route to cultural responsiveness through cultural humility. Um, because that ties together the piece about the identity work, identity awareness that's, you know, um, at the forefront of the cultural responsive field guide for PBIS implementation. It's about, you know, being aware of your own culture and how that influences the way you see others, your expectations, and realizing that your culture, just because that's the way you you know, grew up or you were used to things doesn't necessarily make it the right way or even the, in this case, the best way of connecting with students and families. So that humility part is a route, I believe, to responsiveness and to expect discomfort, you mm -hmm. know, because we're talking about changing well-entrenched ideas, norms and values, and to be willing to change, to be willing to change. Well, where can everybody find some of the work that you all continue to do? Where can they go? Where can they follow you? Where can they, what can they check out? I think we're all on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, the National, National Center's PBIS Forum website, I believe hosted our presentation still. So mm -hmm. that and all of its recorded yes. work. It was an incredible presentation. I highly recommend it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. You could also look at our roundtable discussion guide. That's also on the National Center site. Uh, we did a um, a talk on culturally responsive PBIS and a roundtable discussion. And there's actually a document that was written. So if you want to supplement the culturally responsive uh, field guide, you can also look up that RDQ document as well to get additional information about cultural responsiveness and also some examples from the work that Melania and Kent have been doing in Wisconsin. So. Wonderful. That was fun. We need to do that round table. That was, I love that round table. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe one day when we can all be in the same yeah. space again. Yes, that would be great. <laughs> okay, well, everybody, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. And uh, we'll hope to talk to you soon. Thank you.